And we should be very mindful as we do call upon the angels to gather with our praise as we call them even from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, you his angels, as we have done so here, because the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the angels as they observe the church, this mystery that has now been revealed. God's plan all along was for his glory, and he had done everything for his glory. He created the world for his glory. He saved us for his glory, and he has created the church very particular for his glory. And we need to know how to live that out so that we are living for the glory of God in the manner that he says glorifies him. And that's where we are today. As we begin our text reading from chapter 4, verse 17, I'm going to begin with verse 1, but then jump to verse 17, because verse 1 is kind of the introductory section to this application section of the epistle of how then we are to live. And then in chapter 17, I'm going to go all the way through chapter 5, verse 18, which is the next section of scripture of application as we walk this out uh, unto the Lord. So beginning now... In chapter 4, verse 1, the scripture says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now jumping down to verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who, being past feeling, had given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, And that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt communication or word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for the necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not, be, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself to us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are manifest by light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself in the preaching of the word and in the hearing with our hearts. We ask that you would open up our ears that they may hear and clarify our vision that with faith we may see, and that we might know your will in heaven, and that you would give us the grace to do that here on the earth according to your will, so that it conforms to that which is decreed in heaven itself. Give us understanding how to think about the church and what our responsibilities, what our role is, and who we are, and how to walk that out in the context of this world. You have left us in the world, but we are no longer of the world. We are distinct and holy people, and help us to understand now what that means, how it applies to our lives. And Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God would square us up with the truth of the Scripture and bring forth the fruit that would glorify your name, that would be of angelic marvel, so that you would be glorified both in heaven and on earth in what you're doing here through Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. As we began this chapter of application that now becomes rapid fire to us, the word walking is a word that is often repeated throughout this particular section. We are called to walk out our faith and who we are as a church. As we saw that the church is the body of Christ and a body that is filled with the Spirit we see it as a new creation, much in the likeness that God then took of the ground and he took the dust of the ground and he breathed into life, the breath of life, and man became a living being. We see the church as a, a new living creature. And if you are in Christ, you're a new creature. And as we see what God has done in the church as he's created a people, a bride for his son, an inheritance, as a gift, a love gift, and what he has done is he's taken a body and now he has put in his spirit 
And in this, we are called to live and to walk this out, even in the context of this world of which we no longer are of, but we are still in. So the church is called to be something because she is something and to live in a manner that is conducive of what Christ has declared us to be. And as we walk this out, it's not so much a, a mobility as it is a life. But as we do move forward and the kingdom progresses here, the church is called to live a certain way. In order to live rightly, you have to think rightly. And so chapters 1 through 3, that's what the scripture's intent was, is to get us to think and understand the truth rightly. And that is why there is only uh, one particular application throughout the entire chapter 1 through 3, and that was the word remember. Other than that, it was just all indicative teaching. And as we learn, this epistle about, is what about what... This epistle is what God the Father primarily is doing through Christ in the Spirit-filled church for His glory. And the way that God is glorified and that what we are to learn and to understand in our hearts, we have to be filled with awe. And that's why He spends so much time giving us an understanding of what He is has done, is doing, and will do, because that is to create the learning process, the discovery of that is to create a certain awe in us. And then as we live it out, the angels are discovering as they watch and observe the living epistle that he has made us to be, so that they then stand in awe. And that is why in chapter 3, verses 10, where this mystery that has now been revealed is that which angels marvel at what God is doing. So the church is something of angelic marvel so that God is glorified. Now, in order for that to happen, this is going to be something very supernatural that God is doing in his church. And after God informs us of all these marvelous truths, he then begins in chapter 4 with application, the likes of which neither one of us can apply and live out apart from the grace of God and the power of the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead. But God has given us that, and he expects us to live accordingly and has empowered us to live a supernatural, Spirit-filled, empowered life where we are then renewed in the image of Christ and made to be genuinely human that God has intended for us to be. So the life that the world lives is actually quite contrary to the life that we have been called out of in the way that we used to live. And that's exactly the point of this section of Scripture. To be of angelic marvel where God is glorified, our lives will be in such a contrast to the world that angels who look and behold us will marvel. And as we begin in chapter 4 verse 1, the application was exhorting us to walk worthy of your elective calling. That's calling all of us. Some of your... Bibles say vocation, but this is not your job. This is actually the calling that 
is higher than that. This is what God has called you to. This is what he has saved you to. And now you are to walk in such a way that is in conformity with who you are declared to be. And the verses 2 through 16, we have, we're addressing that last Lord's Day, that we are to walk together, fulfilling the calling with which we've been called by walking in unity, and walking in unity together. And here he's specifically identifying the context of the church, how we are first and foremost to walk this life out in the gospel with Christ, with one another right here. And we are to be striving together for the unity in the body, in peace, and yet be in lowliness of mind and humility of character to walk that out. This next section that begins primarily in verse 17 and goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 18, is a section that has very strategic contrast in it in such a way that these contrasts draw attention to God. Four times the word walk is given in this particular section. And the word walk then is a way that we are to live this thing out. Verse 17, we're not to walk as the Gentiles walk, but verse 20, as Christ. And then he gives applications. Chapter 5, verse 1, we are to walk in love in contrast to lusts. And in chapter 5, verse 8, we are to walk as children of light in contrast to darkness. And in chapter 5, verse 15, we are to walk circumspectfully as wise in contrast to fools. And what all these things have in common is a way of living that is in contrast to the world. The theme of this section of the scripture is walking in contrast to the world. To live to the glory of God. The scriptures then teach us that we must live in contrast to the world around us. And it's going to tell us how to do that. It's not up to us to have to imagine how to do that or to create our own ways to do that. God himself will tell us what it looks like to be genuinely human, recreated in Christ, and having the image of God renewed and restored in us for the intent that his glory can shine through us into a dark world. So some of these contrasts are punctuated with a contrasting conjunction, but. But oftentimes the contrasts are given in just a juxtaposition with one another. And I want to at least recount a number of these contrasts here. This morning, and as I was reading the passage, I think I might have left one out uh, here, which I did. So I count at least 13, 14 different, depending on how you look at these contrasts here. I told Keith I need to have my pen ready because I'm still writing my sermon <laughs> as we continue to go here. Let's look at some of these contrasts because I think they're important for us to see the, the difference. In verse 1, I'm just going to run through maybe 13 or 14 different of these, depending on how you number them. Uh, The very first one I see is a contrast given in verses chapter 4, 17 and 20, not to walk as Gentiles, but to walk as Christ. 
Verse 25, put away lying, but speak truth. In verse 26, be angry, but do not sin or give place to the devil. Verse 28, do not steal, but labor and give. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good to minister grace and edify. Number six, verse 31 and 32, let no corrupt uh, emotions or your, your spirit or your speech or personal grudges or defensive posturing against one another, but rather kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, walk in lust, not in, walk in love and not in lustful desire. There's a contrast here. Chapter 5, verse 3, we have a continued but adversative, but rather giving of thanks. And then we see in verse 8, walk in light in contrast to the darkness. Verse 11, Do not even fellowship with the darkness. He's going to extend the thought of darkness here, but rather expose it. Verses chapter 5, 12, and 13. Not to even talk about the things of darkness. He really is focusing on a contrast with darkness. And so when we get to that point in just a moment, we're going to extend that thought as well. The 11th or the 12th one is in chapter 5, verse 15. We are to walk... In circumspect wisdom, not as fools. 5.17, do not be unwise, but understand the will of the Lord. And verse 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I went through a number of those, 14 of those, so that you see a contrast. Because that's the very point that this passage is drawing our attention to. If we would put it in these terms, if we are a church of angelic marvel, we will, verses 1 through 16, walk in undisturbed unity. And number 2, chapter 4, 17 through 518, we will walk in contrast to our culture. And that's the point of these contrasting phrases. And I pray the Spirit of God will personally illuminate these things to you this morning so that you know what needs to be changed and addressed. As we begin our time right there, let's pray. And let's ask God to work in our spirit to show us the contrast that we are to leave here and go to walk that out for the rest of our lives. Our fathers, we call upon you. Even now, as this message has already begun, we pray that this word would be illuminated not only to our minds, but it would grip our hearts, that we with our hearts would understand who we are, what you've called us to, and called us collectively one to another to, as we live it out with each other, live it out with each other in the context of this world. 
Lord, there is no doubt that each one of us here has applications that we need to change, that we need to repent of, that we need to confess and make decisions about to walk differently than when we came. And so we pray that the Spirit of God would himself put his finger on that in our lives and that with that wisdom that you grant, give us the courage and the grace and the faith to go and be faithful, understanding that all these things redound to your glory and we are most satisfied when you are being glorified through us. So we pray that your spirit would work now in Jesus' name. Amen. When we're out in society, which we live in the context of this world, what is demanded of us is to live in such a manner that is holy that it performs a contrast to the world that Christ came to save. And the reason this is important is because we naturally do not have a tendency to do this. But if we are to live in contrast to the world, that will be fulfilling the very calling. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. My sanctification, the church's sanctification, that's the will of God. So let's consider what this passage teaches that the church is in relation to now how we are to live that out, which is the focus here. And I want to preach to you this morning about living in contrast to the world to glorify God. Living in contrast to the world to glorify God. When you want to highlight something, you do it by way of contrast. Photographers know this. Lighting guys know this, artists know this, musicians know this, good stories do this. Contrast calls attention to right things. And God calls the church to be a contrast in the pagan culture around it. The contrast that we are called to begins with a completely different way of thinking. In verses chapter 4, verse 17, there it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feelings, given themselves over to lewdness, to walk in all uncleanness and greediness. The first place that we have to see a contrast in our lives is the way that we think. Here, the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, in aimlessness and an emptiness in their minds. And that's what's going on in the world. You see it on TV, you see it in the government, you see it in in the politics, you see it on the movie screens, you hear about it in the news. It's utterly pointless. It's vain. It's empty. It's not going anywhere. And they walk, according to verse 18, 
with a dark understanding. That's why they do what they do. Politicians will say the most vain, senseless things out of the darkness of their own understanding. They can't even see inside their own heads because there's no light on there. They are alienated from God. Ignorance is in them. And nobody is ready to reckon with the facts of life until they reckon with the most important thing, and that's God himself. And that's why the contrast with you who God has reckoned with and you've reckoned with God is to be a great contrast in the way that you think about the world and how God has made it. Verse 19 talks about their affections, their emotional aspect. They're being past feelings. They're given over to, to lewdness and lasciviousness, all manners of uncleanness. And the way you think is just going to produce the life, the things you value, how you live your life accordingly. You don't have to go far. You don't have to be, read many headlines before you see the natural depravity that the angels have been observing for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No surprise to them. They've seen it all. There's nothing new under the sun down here like that. But a church that walks contrary to that is going to be a contrast to what the angels have been observing for thousands of years. People who walk together as if the lights are on in their heads and in their hearts. That is a miracle of divine influence. And that is what causes angels to marvel at what God is doing here. That's why unity in the church is a marvel. It is a miracle. And then here we have... One application after another, beginning at verse 25, of this contrast being lived out, runs right down through chapter 5, verse 18. And all of the behavior is the fruit of one's worldview, the lens through which he sees the world, that we're often unconscious of, and that is uh, that which has been formed and shaped in the way that we think about things. And the whole reason for doctrine is to reshape our thinking so that we're not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live in a contrast to this world around it, to the glory of God. So it begins in the way that we think and the understanding of our hearts. And this is what Paul prayed very early on, that your hearts may be illuminated and your hearts may understand. And embrace this. The applications of contrast then begin in rapid fire. Verse 25 deals with truthfulness and honesty. Stop lying. Stop your deceit. Stop misleading and be dishonest and speak the truth and live with a life of integrity. That'll be angelic marvel. They haven't seen the character of that for thousands of years with a people upon this earth consistently lived out. Verse 26, 27, deal with your anger. <laughs> anger itself is not a sin. 
But the way most of us apply it sure is. That's an issue that Jesus addressed on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've murdered him. It's a type of murder. Verse 28 deals with work ethics, with, with cheating and defrauding and stealing from our neighbor. Verse 29 and 30 deals with our speech and, and, and with our words. It's contrasting a way in which we use our tongues to either build up and edify and minister grace into the hearer or to tear down and destroy which is what our old nature is and which is what's common in the world. Verse 31 and 32, there's a contrast here with the spirit, our attitudes and spirit toward one another, rather than being with bitterness and anger and, and speaking ill of each other and holding grudges. The contrast is to live genuine human lives restored in Christ so that we are kind and tenderhearted and lavish and willing and free and easy to forgive those who sin against us. That's a contrast. These things are to be a complete distinction and a contrast to the selfish, self-centered, self-serving, fault-finding, hurt-harboring, blame-shifting, sin-cursed world that we live in and that we were once a part of. The church must be in a complete contrast to that. From the inside out, from our spirit to our attitudes to the way we think about each other to the way we live this thing out in Christ. The supernatural divine character working in us is a true miracle of God and it will be a true contrast to the world as we walk it out faithfully. It will be something not only of angelic marvel but it will be something of humanity's marvel. By this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Never seen that before for thousands of years. Not lived out characteristically upon this earth until the kingdom came. Now this is the heart of what the Bible's teaching is on separateness, holiness. To be separated out of the world unto God to live a peculiar people. And holiness is the light of God shining in and illuminating his people so that they discover a new way of genuinely being human. So that this image of God in which we are created is polished and renewed in such a way that his glory then shines and reflects out into the world. It's a new way of being genuinely human, which is, is not natural to us. It's not the Adam in which we were born into, but we are now in Christ, and it is to be lived out and practiced habitually to the extent it becomes second nature to us. Being holy is not the little super superficial, artificial things that we do to make ourselves look different from the world. 
I mean, I guess we could all get together and decide that we should wear little funny miter hats and when we go out to the world, the world might know that we're Christians by the funny little hats that we wear. That, that's not at all what the scripture calls us to do. That would be artificial. And, and folks, that, that would be a whole lot easier than what God has called us to. The hard way and the right way is to stick this thing out together in society, to totally clean up your speech to speak only truth and never lie, and to live lives of integrity, that is different. So let no more corrupt communication, no more complaining from your lips, no more envious speech, no more accusing others, no more blame-shifting, no more sharp-tongued criticisms, no more gossip, no more ugliness in your talking with your words, no more cutting each other down. You totally clean up your speech and your attitude and your spirit against others, and you will have a rare person on this earth that will be an angelic marvel. And that's what God expects of us. James says, if any man offend not in word, that is a distinctive man. You get a whole body of people like that and their relationships to each other that don't know how to speak evil of each other, that's distinctive, that's miraculous, that will call attention to God. And you have a duty individually in this body to live this way. So calling attention to God is your purpose. That's what you're created for. This is your calling. This is how you walk it out. Now you try this one out. It's not because we're easy to get along with, right? Try being a person who who lives with prickly people. And that is, unfortunately, the way many saints are. It would be nice if, if, if everybody were just smooth and without thorns. And as we go by each other, we just kind of glide by each other with smoothness. And that, that's not the way it works, is it? When you're around Christian people, some of them just poke you all the time. You've got some people that you've been staring at for five years trying to find a rose among all the thorns in that person's life. You know it's got to be there somewhere because they're a brother or sister in Christ, but every time that you're around them, they just skewer you. You know anybody like that? You get 50 people like that now together, and they have to forbear with each other. And they have to suffer long with each other. And they have to be tender-hearted with each other. And they have to be kind to each other. And they have to forgive each other under all kinds of deadlines and pressures and objectives that they're trying to attempt together. And you're looking at a walking miracle when that happens. That's exactly what God has done with his church. Be kind and tender-hearted one toward another, forgiving one another. For God in Christ hath forgiven you. What God is saying in the first three chapters is what he has done. And what he is doing to display his glory through his church to angelic beings and to this world. 
Now walk worthy of that calling and be kind and tenderhearted. And Christians have the ability to do this because God has done far more for any of us. And when you put those commandments in a context like that, all of a sudden it makes being unkind a very grievous sin. And it makes this tender-hearted and gentle spirit a tremendous accomplishment because of what it means to God. And this is why Paul prayed that the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our heart would be illuminated with these things. Then in chapter 5, verses 2 through 7, we're called to now walk in love in contrast to our lusts. We have an epidemic problem today. In the church with lusts, with personal desires, with fornication, with pornography. An epidemic problem in the church was sexual immorality. That are destroying homes and destroying youths. That are prohibiting marriages from occurring. And what we see over against this carnal lust and personal desire is love. That's the the contrast. Walk in love. And as we see the contrast there in walking in love with that of immorality, we have something of the answer to it. If you have a problem with lust, you essentially have a love problem. You have an issue with desire. You desire something more than you love God. And until you get that love value straightened out in your life, you're going to have a continued problem with it. When you love something more than you love God, that's called idolatry. That's called covetousness. And that also leads to immorality. And you need, you need to repent. Change your mind from the way that the Gentiles think about these things because you have been renewed in your mind. Repent. Change your mind. You need that coupled with a new heart direction. A change of attitude, a change of decision, and a change of a lifestyle. And this has to be a decision in your spirit and your character. You have a decision to start loving God and loving your neighbor and stop consuming yourself with yourself and your desires. See, that's the issue. It's a contrast. Doing that old, selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-gratifying self against the love that God has put in your heart for himself and for your neighbor. And when you begin honoring and respecting others, showing kindness, speaking words of edification, serving others with your time, talents, and life, and you do this as unto the Lord, you can overcome this sinful lust. When men can respect women, daughters of other men, no matter if they know them or not, but respect them as the image of God in which they were created, 
and you can honor that unto the Lord, that is part of you loving that will put off these sinful desires. But you got to love God more than you love your desires. This is plain as that. And if you don't, there's a start warning here in verse 5. For you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, it's that strong. Well, you say, no. He goes on. Don't let someone come up and say, but. Let no one deceive you with empty and vain words. For because of these things, the wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. God has saved you for his glorification. And if you don't have a genuine desire to live for his glory in a way that is described here, you need to check your salvation. So there is a contrast here between your personal desires and gratifying yourself as opposed to loving God and and living that out in the way that he has pointed in the scriptures. And now in verse 18 or 8 through 14, we have a contrast between light and darkness. And he's, he's going to focus with three different words here of walking this out. He emphasizes this way of living. There's a characteristic darkness of the world that should never be characteristic of Christians who are called light. You were once in darkness, but now you are light. And you are called to shine your light into the world, which then displaces the darkness. And when light comes, the shadows flee. That's the contrast. Yet so much of the church is following the patterns and the culture of the world that the brightness of their illumination, of the glory of God shining through them, is greatly diminished. There's a lot of culture and subcultures in our world today governed by the principalities and the powers of the air. Let's take several industries, for instance. Take the tattoo industry. It's a dark industry. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody here or call attention to anyone here that may have tattoos. That's not my intent to make anybody here feel uncomfortable. I'm talking about the industry. This is a dark industry. It wasn't Christians that led the way in the modern cultural subculture that is so prominent today But it was the world that led the way and Christians followed. Christians got on the bandwagon. The current craze that we are now experiencing in the tattoo industry can be dated back to the 70s that grew out of the 60s counterculture. And it began with popular personalities of Hollywood and the rock music culture industry began to expose openly their tattoos And the industry itself says it's men like Henry Fonda, Cher, Janis Joplin, who were some of the first to expose their ink, that which began the popularization of this tattoo business today, which considers body piercings now to be included with their industry. 
It has more than doubled in the past decade. It's still going strong and expected to grow strong with over 8% growth per year over the next decade. It's currently at a $1.3 billion industry. You add the body piercings to it, it's at $2.3 billion industry as of today. 36% of U.S. citizens between the ages of 18 and 29 have at least one tattoo. 60% of the people with tattoos claim that the tattoo made them feel sexy or rebellious. Those are dark feelings of the Gentiles. Yet after decades of cultivation in our society, still over 70% of the employers, both in the United States and the United Kingdom, do not favor visible tattoos for their employees. It's very controversial, even among the Gentile world, as being acceptable and a good and right thing of light. Las Vegas and Miami are the two leading cities when it comes to the tattoo parlors, parlors and that ought to tell you something. The industry is dark. And Christians make up a very large portion today of the consumer base following the subculture of which the, uh, the world has proposed, has popularized. And many Christians have got on the bandwagon and continue on this being influenced by those things of darkness rather than exposing them. The industry is dark, it was rooted in darkness, and it sprang forth from darkness, and it continues to cultivate darkness. And as we consider the contrast of light in the dark world, I am called, we are called, to expose the darkness. And that's what I'm doing right now. I know there's been a lot of controversy even among Christians that debate over this particular issue. I'm not here to debate, I'm here to expose the darkness with light of the truth of the scripture. It's a dark industry. Hollywood is a dark industry. Everything that comes out of Hollywood is dark. The counterculture of the music industry, and there is a very particular countercultural music industry, it's dark. The goth subculture today is so prominent in the world that it has been deemed as one of the most ten influential subcultures in the world for the past decade. It is identified deliberately in darkness, with darkness. The sexual revolution of the LGBT and the dark subcounterculture that goes along with it, including the new trending gender confusion. Industries grow up around these subcultures. And these dark movements are cultivated in the minds and the hearts of Christians whose minds need to be renewed and in contrast with the ways of the world, not on the same bandwagon with them. And these dark movements of the world are cultivated in this world and in your minds through their stories and through their music and by talk show hosts and by their entertainment and the curriculum that they write. And with their symbols, yes class, this is how a worldview of culture is created. And after a while, Christians began to accept them as new ways for them to express themselves, seeing no harm. But these are dark subcultures that have something in common with each other. And it goes back to the section in chapter 417, this I say and testify to you, no longer walk 
as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And these ideas that are spoken of there have consequences which then 19, verse 19 says, being past feelings have given themselves over to lewdness to work all kinds of uncleanness and greediness. Those ideas of darkness have their consequences, and we are seeing it in the church today. Expose these things with light and truth and your holiness in life. Do not go along with them. You have to discern the difference between the two that you might stay away from one and embrace the other. There are some people who want to live their lives on the edge to get so close what is unacceptable as possible, but without going off the edge, just living close to the edge. Christians should take exactly the opposite approach and work to stay as far away from anything that could have the appearance of evil or darkness or to participate in dark things of this world so that they would reflect brightly on Christ. But if you then see how close to the edge you can get, you're not reflecting the glory of God and by way of contrast. Folks, we're called to expose the darkness, to live as highlights among the shadows, to live in stark contrast to it and not allow the darkness to diminish our light, but rather let our light expose and drive out the darkness. The last exhortation in this section is given in verses 5, chapter 5, verse 15 and 18. It's admonishing us to walk circumspectly as wise and not as fools. And what it says in the next verse is redeeming the time for the days are evil. The idea is taking advantage of the opportunity and time that God gives to you and not wasting it, but redeeming it. Don't waste your life. Again, there are worldly industries that have emerged that endanger Christians from redeeming the time here on earth in the very way that this is exhorting us to live in a contrast to. The social media craze is one of them. They know how to waste your time. They know how to get you to stop redeeming the time for the days are evil. Guess what? There is one behind all of that. There is a principality and a power that knows how to manipulate society, including Christians. Far more intelligent than any man on earth can think about it. The social media craze is one of these ways. Do you know there are new college-level four-year degrees that have been created as a result of these industries, the social media industry? Social engineering degrees in places like Stanford University, an elite engineering school, teach how to utilize technology to change the way society thinks and acts. And there is a deliberate worldview behind it. A Gentile futility of their minds, empty and vain, 
And God would say, do not waste your time. It should come to no surprise that Mark Zuckerberg and others are drunken with dark understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. It's not enough to have this for themselves. They want to propagate it and capitalize on your time. Folks, your time is your life. How are you spending your life? Is it in contrast to the world redeeming it because the days are evil? Or is it getting on the bandwagon? Facebook and other social media like them, their objective is to get you to stay on their platform for as long as they can. They have learned to utilize your time and your life, and they sell you. The longer you stay on their platform, the higher their profits become. Your time is what they are consuming and marketing and selling. But your time is your life. So in effect, they're marketing your life and they are consuming it and they are absorbing it and they are selling it and they are profiting from it. And God says, don't do that. Redeem the time. In contrast to the futility of these Gentiles who squander it off in riotous living. Because you lose and they win. Do not live as fools, but as wise. That's the contrast. Make the most out of your time so that your life will glorify God with it. What we see in this entire section is a contrast of living for the Christian to the way of the world. To live for God's glory, you must be thinking in a way that the Bible instructs us to think. As a genuine human being, renewed in the image of God, renewed as God has intended humans to be. When the fall came, our image was marred, and now in Christ He has restored it and is renewing it in original knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And this is going to be a contrast to the way of the world. We have to discern the difference. We have to know it and embrace it in our heart of understanding and have to make then choices in life against the backdrop of the world for his glory. Make choices in your life for God's glory against the backdrop of the world. Make choices. And follow through. Where your speech and your character, and your relationships, and your attitudes, and your spirit are all in stark contrast to the world because you have been redeemed, because you have been forgiven, because God has shown his kindness to you. Go and show it to others. Because God has forgiven you, be lavish with your forgiveness of others. Because God has been merciful to you, you are to be merciful. Because God has spoken well to you, you go and speak well to others. 
Because you are light. God is light. Christ is light. Now be the contrast to the darkness in the world where your love for God and your neighbor is in contrast and stands in stark contrast to your own personal desires of the old man. When your time is spent in meaningful activity against those matters that are vain and futile, wasting your life. We are called to walk in contrast to the world, and that's what brings God glory. That's what causes angels to marvel. That's what they see, which is different down here, in this mystery which has been revealed. And when you make those decisions for the glory of God, angels will marvel. You are always, always being watched, even when you think you are very alone. May God help us to live in unity with one another, and to live in a contrast to the ways of this world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what we read before us is an impossible task to do in our flesh, but you have given us the grace to do that which is impossible so that we would be of angelic marvel and we would glorify your name. We are new creatures in Christ. We have the supernatural living within us. We have the Spirit of God, which is the power that raised up Christ from the dead, been given to us in power that when you raised us up from the deadness, now to alive to God, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and we can have the victory over all of these things in our lives. Lord, I pray for those who may be struggling today with, with the darkness of this world, with immorality, idolatry, covetousness, with bitterness or anger, who have been drunken with the ways of the world and not filled with the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit, with those who have toyed with the areas of darkness of the world. Lord, I pray that you would deliver all of us from these ways and give victory so that our light can so shine and it could drive out the darkness that our love would so abound that it would drive out our desiring lusts, that we could live wisely and not be prone to live foolishly. Lord, we ask that you would transform our minds with this truth today and cause our lives to walk this out pray that the Spirit of God would show us very specific applications in our personal lives, our family lives, the corporate life of this church of how we need to change, repent, confess, and walk differently, make decisions for your glory. That would be in stark contrast to the way that the world would ever think or make decisions. We would do this for your glory in a manner that would delight our hearts. And so we ask the Spirit of God to show us these things, that we can make some changes concretely, that we can be agents of your glory. So we pray that the Spirit of God would lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen.